Welcome to Reading Between the Reels. I'm Craig Dickinson. And I'm Matt Leader. Today on the show, we are reviewing Pacific Rim, which is a fantastic summer blockbuster film. Well, well, there's your first first thought, first <laughs> yeah. overall thought. Yeah. And and this one, you know, uh, I'm glad to say that you picked, and mm-hmm. I was a little hesitant to do, uh, but I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, I had only seen it once when you suggested we do it, but I watched it twice since, uh, and I'm on board now. Yeah. So, so I'm actually really curious why you were not on board after first seeing it. You know, it's tricky with with movies. A lot of times, you just have expectations unfairly i think a lot of times and it just didn't do what i wanted it to do there are certain beats i think i was looking for certain certain things i wanted to do wanted it to do and it and it didn't do those things uh and i can't even remember what they are at this point hmm. uh but at this point i'm just it's you know it's a, it's very similar to, to honestly like the last film we did there's gonna be a lot of similarities to to independence day where it's it's it knows what it is yeah and and it's just it's just a fun time so let it be what it's gonna be Mm-hmm. And, you know, check your brain at the door and, you know, enjoy because it's got a lot of great action. There's some some funny stuff in it. Um, amazing special effects. And, you know, it's a ride. It's it's one of those popcorn movies that you can just, you know, relax to and enjoy. Yeah. And, you know, it, you know, we have that uh, that saying it knows what it is. And I'm pretty sure I've used that to describe movies before. And it just got me thinking about, you know, what that actually means. And for me, the more I think about it, the more it kind of seems to me that, um, the the voice of the author or filmmaker is confident in what they're doing. They know what they are trying to accomplish, and I, I feel like there's you know the films who that are you know don't do that that don't know what they are. You have the filmmakers where it's there's there's parts that are comedy and parts that are are sad and they don't gel together. They don't they don't work as a cohesive whole. And I think Pacific Rim is one of those movies where it's a very silly and simple concept, just executed to a well enough degree that it's enjoyable. It's giant monsters, giant robots, and they are just doing karate out in the ocean and in the city. And that's it. That's, that's the pitch. That's, that's the movie in 15 seconds. And that sounds fun. Yeah, no, I, I like what you said about knowing what it is and having, you know, the confidence. And, you know, it's, uh, we should mention, you know, it's it's Guillermo del Toro, who's, you know, an award-winning director and writer. Uh, he's highly acclaimed at this point. And, you know, he's he's made some, some very bold movies over the years. Uh, I think the first one of his that I ever saw was Blade II, mm. uh, which blew me away. I loved it. Uh, I loved both of the Hellboy movies. Um, some of his later ones, can kind of take or leave, honestly, just because it wasn't my, you know, it wasn't my flavor of film, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But in, in all cases, like the guy has a vision, yeah, and executes it. Absolutely, and and that's exactly what I'm talking about. Where it's like you feel like you're in the hands of a confident creator who can see his vision and then execute on that vision. And it's totally fine. Uh, one of his more recent films that was very critically acclaimed, The Shape of Water, um, I thought was a well-made movie. I thought it was fine. It was a good film. Uh, kind of like you just said, where it's like, it wasn't quite my cup of tea. It wasn't like my favorite film. But I do think that it was very well-realized, well-written, well-directed. 
just wasn't quite for me. Uh, Pacific Rim is is right up my alley of, and I I mean this in a loving way, but uh, like a dumb action movie, right? And I mean, I don't mean that. And it's like it's a dumb film or or anything like that. But it's just it's a popcorn flick. Might be a kinder way of saying that, where it's something that you can turn on and simply enjoy. You know, the the stakes are are fun. Uh, it's not too serious. There are dramatic beats. There are, you know, I think a number of character moments. But it, at the end of the day, it's big robots fighting big monsters. Yeah, I and absolutely. And and uh, you know, some of the things that I that I also really liked about the film was uh, the marketing and pop culture aspect at the beginning, where they're kind of going through. And and I like the the exposition at the beginning. I, I thought that was was great. And I don't always like that. Sometimes it feels um, it's a it's a little lazy in some cases. But I thought this mm-hmm. worked really well because it was you know just brings you in first person. You know, this guy's been through trauma, and he's kind of giving you his his backstory. And and the over the film overall is is kind of a redemption story for for Charlie Hunnam's character uh, Rally Baggett. Uh, but I really liked that they were like here, here we're on talk shows and 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 all these things and, and the they kind of have like the news footage uh, at the beginning. I really liked that a lot. It just helped sell the film that you know even though it's even though it's silly, it's it's not played tongue in cheek either. So there's it yeah. strikes this really interesting balance between. You know, not taking itself too seriously, but not playing it as if it's campy, which I think is a really tricky thing to do. Yeah. And I I think a lot of that for me comes from the uh, excellent world building. And you kind of touched on that with like the newsreels and and it kind of sells itself. Uh, It's a very colorful world. Uh, There's moments of that kind of uh, like world building where, you, you know, they have this okay, giant robot thing. And that's been done before. And then they add a small twist to it uh, where you have two pilots and they have to work in tandem. And there is this sense of connection between these two people that you have to have, but it's both, you know, it's like a double-edged sword. It, it helps the the pilots because they can't pilot the Jaegers without two people. But if one of them gets hurt, it's it's like, you know, our main character, Charlie Hunnam, when his brother dies, he feels that, right? It is his death as well. And so, you know, it, I found that like a really interesting twist on the kind the, the the giant robot genre, if you will, because it adds an interesting character flavor or twist to it, uh, which I think is excellent because anything that, in my opinion, that draws you into the characters uh, is always going to be a good thing. Yeah, that was one of the things that I, I noticed this time too, was because I knew about the neural link. That was one thing I, I picked up pretty quickly the first time through and, and thought that was kind of an interesting twist. But this time I really focused on the fact that it's it's really kind of three uh, beings together, you know, because it's both mm-hmm. of the pilots, but then anything that actually happens to the Jaeger, you can see the pilots actually feeling that pain too when the arm right. is 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 jacked up by the by the kaiju so it's kind of like this three in one symbiosis thing which i thought was a whole other level uh which i thought was was fascinating too yeah so something else that uh i thought was really interesting as i watched this film was we're talking about kind of some similarities with independence day our last episode 
uh, was that this is the film that has that international flavor. You yeah, know, we talked about how Independence Day is very American-centric, and this one, it does. You know, you have you got Australia, you got China, you got Russia, and all these countries working together. Mm-hmm. There's, it's not nationalistic at all. I mean, like we're not even really sure. I guess you know it happens. It's Pacific Rim, so right? It happens. It happens there, right? It happens in, yeah. in Asia is where uh, most of this, uh, the action that we see in the film is. Yeah, is almost all of it. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's to the movie's uh, benefit. Uh, I think, you know, and transitioning into the actors, I mean, you have this uh, just panoply of different actors uh, who all do, I think, a a very good job. Um, I do have to say that um, Charlie Hunnam, I I think, is totally fine. I don't think he was a particularly inspiring choice. Um, You know, I think he he carries the movie just fine. Uh, For me, the one who is just a brilliant casting um are the two scientists um and i i'm forgetting their names uh you got charlie day from always sunny in philadelphia and that that that's the one where it's like he's a perfect mad scientist uh he is perfect in that kind of little subplot b actor uh position where he's uh, mind melding with the kaiju um i think that's just a, a really fun and interesting uh, subplot to have again because it, it creates this this connection between the monsters and the humans um it's just to me kind of an inventive way to advance the plot where it could have been and it some in some ways it kind of is like a monsters are here because they're here <laughs> right but then it adds a little bit of sprinkles on top with that charlie day subplot uh, where, you know, they're kind of coming after him and he meets Ron Perlman, who's, who's fun. <laughs> yeah, we'll uh, get there. <laughs> so uh, that to me was some inspired. Idris Elba also uh, yeah. plays a fantastic stern father figure. Yeah, I had a couple things uh, in my notes about those guys too. And Newt is the, is the one guy. I think Newt, Herman, yes. Herman Gottlieb is, is the other, uh, the, the British guy. Uh, which really quickly, Charlie Hunnam's British. Why don't just have him use the British accent? I would have been fine with that because sure. Idris Elba does the British accent. It's awesome. It's international anyway. I don't know. Yeah. It's, a, it's a it's a choice. It's kind of like why does Finn have a you know American accent when he's British uh, in Star Wars? I never noticed that. Yeah, that's true too. I think you've ruined the movie for me. <laughs> Sorry, uh, but I just had for for the scientists that they're kind of like this Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, but also very much. Like R two and C three PO because there's there's oh, yeah? definitely some Star Wars stuff in this one. I mean, ILM did did the special effects, and there's some other movies. And when we get to the sound, uh, especially, I want to talk about. Uh, I was like, wow, that kind of reminds me of. And then I go dig a little deeper. It reminds me of that because it's the same people that worked on on that film. Um, so uh, speaking of the colors, you mentioned the colors earlier. Yeah, you know, you know, this is. Uh, it's kind of a combination. We talked about there's the giant robots and there's the kaiju. It's like the Godzilla thing, but it's also like an anime thing. Mm-hmm. It's a heavy anime influence. So there's so much bright neon colors. It very much looks like a cartoon. It looks like like an anime cartoon. And I was amazed this time watching how much yellow yeah. is in the film, which is you know typically you know color theory. It's success, achievement, triumph as as the gold, and you see that. The helmets 
uh, for the, the for the pilots for Gypsy Danger. Gypsy Danger's mm-hmm. face, you know, just like the visor like part. Like yellow. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that was pretty pretty interesting. The biggest thing that I that I like, that's no pun intended, is just how massive everything is. Mm-hmm. And so that you rarely get to see all of either the Kaiju or the Jaegers. The way that the, the shots are set up, where it's like they're so big, we couldn't even put them in the camera, if, in, you know, in the frame if we wanted to. Yeah. Well, it, like it's got a fantastic sense of scale. Yeah. Uh, which is, uh, you know, mentioning Star Wars, I think Rogue One is probably the best Star Wars film for a sense of scale. And this movie does a good job, just like Rogue One, where the big things look really big. And some movies, they, they kind of struggle with that. Yeah, this one did not. No. Yeah. The, the second time I watched the film, because I was kind of watching the, the film you know, in, in anticipation of, of doing this episode. And that was, the, the, I think, the thing that I was struck with the most was just how little I actually got to see of the creatures and, and the Jaegers. So I was like, I, I don't get to see you from head to toe very often, uh, which I think is, is better. It, it just really does, uh, you know, strike home just how massive these things are mm-hmm. and how powerful they are. And it just, it adds to, I don't know if it's gravitas quite the right, is quite the right, uh, quite the right word, but um, it feels, it feels bigger. It feels more important. Yeah. And with the color, I, I think it's so refreshing. I don't know what it is, uh, but I do seem to love sci-fi films that have that really colorful palette. Uh, it also makes me think of Guardians of the Galaxy and how bright and colorful the outer space Marvel universe is compared to the much more drab and not quite desaturated, but it's not very bright MCU in general on Earth. Um, and you know, it kind of reminds me of of the DC films and how. Uh, desaturated those movies are and it you know it's a it's a stylistic stylistic effect and it can definitely work but i think that for you know this kind of a movie where we're talking about like a popcorn flick over the top giant creatures that bright color palette just helps sell the fun aspect of it yeah, and you know the the color is is absolutely deliberate in this film. I know in some films it's kind of like, well, this looked nice. I think there's that kind of is the prevailing reason that that things are done. But in this one, it felt so deliberate. Not only the gold, but you also have the blue for the drift images, um, which is you know if you get into color theory a little bit more, it talks about intuition, imagination, those kind of things. It's very like the ocean. It's very kind of carries you along. They call it the drift, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in that one flashback, uh, when Mako's a little girl, she's all in blue, 100% blue, except for the little red shoe, uh, which is very striking uh, and can also represent courage or, or will or passion. So it's, it's interesting that she hangs on to that, too. So you have this very striking um, contrast between those two colors. I mean, she's also not in Kansas anymore. So <laughs> this is true. <laughs> definitely not. It's definitely a wake up call for her. Yeah. So I do want to talk about the soundtrack, um, which I love the soundtrack. It, it alternates, uh, I think, beautifully between like a more traditional symphonic score uh, and something. And, and I originally put, it sounds like the best of the first Iron Man. And, and I, dig, I dug a little deeper. And um, yeah, that's because uh, Ramin Jawadi did the music for Iron Man and for this film. So yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. You know, 
uh, and I'm not saying he's, he's just kind of like John Williams a little bit. You're kind of like riffing on some of the stuff you've done before, but it was very reminiscent of, especially, uh, you know, when you see guys suiting up and locking themselves into uh, the Jaegers. And of course, mm-hmm. the suits are designed by the same guy that did Iron Man as well. So there's some heavy Iron Man influence on that. And I think it works fine. I don't feel like, oh man, that ripped off Iron Man or anything like that. But it's like some of the best parts of that first Iron Man movie, I think, were Tony getting into the suit for the first time. Uh, and sure. you're kind of getting that same kind of feel here, kind of getting pumped up. Then you know the adrenaline's pumping out. So uh, I also uh, absolutely love the soundtrack. Um, I was, I've always been a fan of uh, Jawadi since his work on Game of Thrones. Uh, he scored the entire series. Uh, and I adore his score for that series. And so uh, when this movie first came out, I actually saw his name and was quite excited for it. Uh, and it's very different. I, I don't believe you've seen Game of Thrones, Craig. Um, but the, the scores are, are very different. Um, and it surprised me as well. And it's it's very guitar heavy, which surprised me because I, you know, I'm, I could be wrong on this, but it doesn't feel like uh, guitar heavy soundtracks are all that common uh, in in modern movies. And it did, it did have that nice balance between the more symphonic, uh, the, the guitar kicks in, though, and it feels fantastic. Uh, that emotion, that adrenaline that you mentioned, um, it is a fantastic pairing with the film uh, that that he's he's scoring. Yeah, it, you know, really speaks to to his talent. That I mean, you would mm-hmm. think if you didn't know that it was you know two different composers that are doing this because it is so yeah. diverse. Uh, but no, it's it's just the one guy, and you know, it's it seems like it's typically in in battle scenes, kind of like when you're gearing up or when it's about to you know hit the climax of the battle scene where you're you're getting that guitar heavy stuff. Uh, which again, it's just you're you're feeling it, you know, you get excited about it, and it. I mean, this this movie's rock and roll. I mean, it, it is, is right? <laughs> visual rock and roll. Exactly. Yeah. So moving down to uh, performance a little bit, one thing that. I thought was really interesting. We talked a little bit about the neural links earlier and kind of how the Jaeger is kind of an extension of, uh, of the pilots and vice versa. Uh, I love that they're doing martial arts training to figure out, you know, who's going to be the best drift partner mm-hmm. and that you see, you know, this very interesting mix of shots to be able to, you know, from close-ups to, to full shots. So you can tell that, you know, it's actually the actors doing the stunts, which I always appreciate. I think that's very cool. Uh, but it was interesting to see that you know this this movie has so many layers to it, and then kind of bringing in you know that's probably more of an anime or a kung fu movie and like there's lots of different flavors to this film that are kind of mixed into the into the pot. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, do you want to talk about some of the uh, kind of sliding scale of acting a little? Definitely. So, I would have to say that. Uh, the woman who plays Mako, she's kind of static for them, but I think it it's it's meant to be that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that Idris Elba is just great as always. He, he don't talk about gravitas. I mentioned that word earlier. He's he's fantastic in everything he's in. You know, you you see him on screen and he's just chewing scenery, and he you have to pay attention. Uh, and then you have Ron Frickin Perlman on the melodramatic <laughs> side, who is fantastic. You know, you see him, it's like, oh, okay, now I'm having fun. Yeah. On promos on screen. Yeah. 
Uh, love, love Ron Perlman. Uh, like you said, uh, Edris Elba, you know, he's got the, the one rule. Don't touch me. <laughs> right. You know, first thing, don't touch me. Second thing, don't touch me. Yep. Uh, he's, he's fantastic. Um, I, I do agree with you that, uh, Mako Mori is, uh, definitely more static. Uh, but I do think that was intentional because she does seem a much more stoic character. Uh, and I think it's meant to juxtapose and kind of contrast with, the emotion that she feels in her flashback scene. And so for me, it really stood out as she is intentionally static because her character is reserved. She showed so much emotion as that child that it's, she can't let that emotion out again and she's scared of it. And so part of her arc in, in um, uh, drifting with uh, Charlie Hunnam's character is that she has to learn to kind of deal with those emotions in order to successfully uh, fight back against the, the Taiju. And so I, I think that it's definitely static. I completely agree with you. Um, I think that was, that was definitely a choice. Yeah, no, I agree. And we mentioned in, in earlier episodes, and I think it doesn't get mentioned enough that the, I mean, the, a lot of times these are choices. It's not good, bad, and and worse, right? Mm-hmm. If you're melodramatic and you're supposed to be, you know, that's that's exactly what you're supposed to A-plus. be doing. Or static. She's she's absolutely, you know, she's playing it exactly the way she should. Uh, Rinko Kikuchi, I think is how you say her name. Uh, she's really good in the film, and she's not mm-hmm. she's not one note. She and she's not static all the time. She gets upset, you know, at, at a later point with. Uh, with Idris Elba's character. So she can definitely act. So it's definitely, it's not, well, she's wooden. She's horrible. It's, 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 you know, it's a characteristic of, of her and it makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And I think this is actually a really good example of static acting. That isn't bad acting, you know, when it's an intentional choice and it fits the character, which I think it does in this case. So there's a lot of great lines in this film. And I'm curious to hear what some of your, I mean, you mentioned the don't ever touch me again to don't ever touch me again, <laughs> which is fantastic. I had that down too. Did you have any other lines that just jumped off for you that you wanted to mention? Um, so I love, I love the, the new character. Um, and so I, 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 to me, there weren't any, any particular lines, uh, but his kind of uh, frenetic uh, conversation uh, I, re- I really enjoyed the one line that has always stuck with me, I think it was in the trailer too, is when uh, Idris Elba says that they are canceling the apocalypse. Yep. Uh, that right there is is probably the one line from the movie that is the line from the movie uh, for me. What about you? Yeah. So first off, there's your you know your take on Bill Pullman's speech from Independence Day. Yeah. Uh, that's the way. I'm, like, it's not as good. No. Because Bill Pullman's speech is like a ten, and this might be like an eight. But I think I, I think the last line is a ten. The yeah. rest of it is anyway. yeah. It, yeah. It's kind of it's kind of sudden. Um, <laughs> I like uh, I I like the newt too. And when Newt talks to to Hannibal, pretty much everything mm-hmm. they say, Hannibal Chow is amazing. Hannibal Chow says, "You like the name? I took it from uh, my favorite historical character in my second favorite Szechuan restaurant in Brooklyn." Genius. Why yeah. is second favorite? Because it's awesome. Yeah. Uh, but the best, uh, my favorite thing with Newt. <laughs> Hannibal says, why do you want a kaiju brain? And he says, well, that's classified. So I couldn't tell you, even if I wanted to. But it's pretty cool, so I might tell you anyway. I'll tell you anyway. Yeah. 
that that frenetic thing of like, oh yeah, he's gonna just wants to spill it because it's so cool. Oh yeah, yeah. And he's aware of that he's in a silly movie and it's cool. Oh yeah, and that and that's kind of that you know, they all know what they're doing. Actors like on a meta level, <laughs> right? And the characters, so awesome. Uh, I mentioned earlier about how the Jaeger suits were were built by uh, this guy named Shane Mahan, who's the guy who also designed the armored suits for Iron Man, which is awesome. Like hire that guy more because he's great. <laughs> um, I loved Hannibal Chow's gold shoes. I thought those were fantastic, uh, especially because we get the payoff later where, you know, <laughs> where's my yeah. shoe? Yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Uh, anything um, else under, under performance that you want to mention before? We... Yeah, this is kind of performance, a little bit of design. I'm not quite sure. Um, but one of the voices that you hear of like the computer, um, have you ever played the video game portal? I have not. Okay. So there's a computer character in this video game. It's, it's fairly old at this point. And, uh, the computer's name is GLaDOS and it has like the exact same voice as the computer in, in this movie. So, um, I'll have to send you a link. Uh, to the voice and I think you'll you'll recognize it but uh, that was an interesting choice Um, and I'm not sure how intentional it was uh, because GLaDOS kind of goes crazy and like goes rogue in the video game portal so um, you know I'm not sure if that was intended or uh, just a certain you know like a circumstance that popped up but uh, kind of an interesting nugget for anyone who's played that game yeah, that's fun. That's awesome. Uh, set decoration. So first off, it's filmed primarily in Toronto and, you know, in a computer. I mean, <laughs> let's be real. Uh, but yeah, Toronto is where, where they film most of it. Uh, they have a lot of used universe in this one. Mm-hmm. You know, paint peeling, dents on the Jaegers, and yet there's hologram tech. You know, Iron Man hologram tech, essentially. Uh, the rusty girders on the wall of life I thought was awesome. That he even used a chalkboard uh, to kind of figure out the double event, I thought was was awesome. That they were in old school with that, uh, and then everything in Hannibal Chow's place is amazing. There's so much to see there. Like you're gonna be pausing the movie just to try and catch all of the weird creature stuff. Well, it reminds me of the Collector in Guardians, yep. <laughs> and just this kind of very colorful, uh, visually, but also like characteristic wise of this kind of museum of interesting things in this movie it's all kaiju stuff and uh charlie charlie day's character runs in there and like is just freaking out because he's <laughs> never seen these things live before and you kind of get this sense that yes this this black market and again that's not like one of those things that i love about the film is that it does sell itself as that kind of real used universe uh and it sells it really well. Um, you know, I, I, I think it sells it better than a lot of films sell their universe. It feels lived in. Uh, it feels like there are actual people, characters, you know, walking around these places. Um, the, oh, I forget the name of it, uh, but the, the base where all the um, Jaegers are, are, are right in the, in the main part of the film. Um, you see all these people walking around in, in like this maintenance hangar. And it re- reminded me of the maintenance hangars you see in Star Wars all the time, 
where you have extras just walking back and forth. And I always think, you know, these people are on this movie set and they just get told to walk basically in circles, probably hours, you know, all the time. Uh, but it's just giving this kind of a life, almost like an ant colony uh, or ant farm where you see these little ants moving around, um, constantly moving, constantly doing things, but it's kind of imitating life in that way where people are actively doing things. You know, there is life in these places. Um, the, the public uh, kaiju shelter that, uh, that new ends up in, right? Yeah. All of that has that sense of, of life to it, uh, which I think is, is fantastic. And that is part, to me, that is part of the setting. Right. And the design that the, the directors and the creators, they set out to make. And that's something that the movie does really well. Yeah, it does feel like a bigger world than, than what they give you. There's really not that many actors, like primary actors in this right. film that have bigger parts. But it does feel like a bigger world. Like there has been, there's clearly a history uh, that's been going on it. So you have, you know, that's why the Jaegers are dinged up. You know, you have mm-hmm. even the fact that you have, you know, Gypsy Danger being this outdated model, you know, that they've been doing this stuff for a while. Something that did just occurred to me just now is, is they don't talk a whole lot about the property damage or all the people that die when they're fighting the Kaiju though. It's kind of, yes. kind of just ignore that. That's a very yeah. Marvel MCU thing right there. We'll just, we'll just pretend that, that that's okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's also a Zack Snyder thing. Um, oh, come no, no. So we did a whole <laughs> sequel about the fallout from that. Let's so, go. Let's do that. We'll do that another time. But um, uh, yes. Batman v Superman. Yes. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those films where I think you're so into the action that you don't notice it oh, I until, uh, until you do. And then yeah. you think about it. And it's just suspension of disbelief, right? Where it's like, okay, I'm going to roll with it. Um, yeah, I think we used to do that all the time. And and honestly, like that's the way I prefer it. Where we don't have to worry about it. Like I want to see the big giant robot hit the big lizard with a boat. Well, and I also think that there's <laughs> yes, which is an awesome scene. I also think it speaks to the heart of the characters in the heart of the movie, where when I went to Pacific Rim, that's exactly what I wanted, what you just said, right? Um, but I think that DC movies. Batman movies, Superman movies, stories in general, right? There is this kind of expectation and sense of morality that's involved uh, where it's like, you know, for, for many iterations of Batman, he does not kill that for, you know, like, you know, that, that has, that's a very strong sense of morality there. Uh, Superman, I think is, um, you know, the, the shining beacon of of really like the best of humanity in a way right and that carries a sense of morality with it and i think those stories people want to go in they want to examine this idea this philosophical idea of like is batman right to not kill right and i think you could make an argument for and against it when i go to pacific rim I want to see big robots smashing monsters with big boats. That's right. And it's like, or, you know, that's what I mean by quote unquote, dumb action movie. Sure. Is I'm putting, putting aside some of the philosophical baggage and not that you can't analyze this film, not that there isn't things to analyze in it. Um, but I, I'm, I, I'm asking the film 
to do something else for me, to help me relax, have fun. Where if I go to, you know, um, you know, the dark night, there's some interesting philosophical and uh, ethical questions in there that the movie asks. And I think audiences go into that movie expecting that a little bit more. Yeah. And I'm so looking forward to doing those with you. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. And, and we will. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but speaking of this movie, back to Pacific Rim, uh, was there any characters that we did not talk about or character moments that we should make sure we mention? Uh, I had I've, earlier. So I'm watching this film and, and it's, it's weird. I've only seen the film three times. Second time through, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Third time through, I'm watching through, and I'm like, oh, and Ron Perlman died in the awesome, mm. uh, you know, jump scare, and I wrote him off. And, of course, you, you can't kill Ron Perlman that easily. So he survives. Uh, spoiler, you know, uh, if you haven't seen the film, till you know, mid-credits, which is fantastic. Uh, so so that, I think that might be uh, the last character thing that I have. I enjoyed all the, all the pilots. I thought there was nothing that stood out. Yeah. Um, just kind of, you know, it's some, some kind of stuff you'd see like in Top Gun, you know, just sure. kind of chomping at each other. And then you have this big sacrifice at the end with, with Idris Elba, which is, which is great. He has that line, you know, all, you can always find me in the drift, which is nice. Uh, I did find it interesting. I've heard other people talk about this as well, that there is no romantic subplot, even though they kind of telegraph that there's going to be. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, to me, there is, <laughs> there's subtext. Yeah. Um, I think that at the, at the beginning of the movie, there, there is some kind of chemistry uh, between essentially our two main characters. Um, you know, and that, that doesn't have to be a like romantic or, or sexual chemistry. Um, but I think there is, I, I think people will read into that pretty naturally um and so i don't know <laughs> i i i kind of I, I feel like there was something there yeah uh you know for a lot of the film what about you no i i think especially at the end you're just kind of like and they're gonna kiss and they don't yeah which is not it's it's not as awkward as it like if, i think the first i was told like it was gonna be really awkward and it's not really no if you're not expecting it right it, it reminds me a little bit of and this is kind of an obscure deep cut, but it reminds me a little bit of a few good men in that it looks a little bit like in the trailers, like Tom Cruise's character and Demi Moore's character. We're going to have a relationship of some kind and right. they completely steer clear of that. Mm -hmm. And you know, it doesn't matter that we did that. That's not what the, that's not the story we're telling. Right. And I think that that holds true here as well. That's not the story we're telling. She, she is, you know, both, you know, Raleigh and, and Mako, you know, have a, period of growth through this film. They're both mm -hmm. more fully realized by the time they get to the end, but they don't need to have, you know, that relationship, the romantic relationship with each other to get there. Sure. And that's fine. Yeah. And, and like you said, uh, you know, that's, that's not the story being told. And so, you know, it's not um, a movie about that relationship. So the fact that it doesn't, you know, mature into something never bothered me. Awesome. So final thoughts on Pacific Rim. Uh, to me, I think it's just a fantastic action movie. I think it's a fantastic popcorn film that you can go in expecting fun and have that expectation filled 
pretty neatly. What about you? Uh, I have to mention at this point that I love that we're doing this because our friend Dan Zare hates this movie. And so we're going to make him listen to an episode all about <laughs> Pacific Rim. Uh, while Corey Club, his his co you know co former co host and co creator of Alpha Kenobi, loves it. So there's been there's kind of a running gag since this movie came out that Corey loves it and Dan hates it. So we'll just kind of stir the pot on that again. Which is I fun. would be really interested in interested in hearing what Dan's thoughts are because I don't know what there is to hate. <laughs> I know, isn't that awesome though? Like yeah, just, just do it, stir that pot. So yeah. I let him know we were doing this episode. So I I can't wait to hear his <laughs> thoughts on that. Um, I did. One of the themes that we haven't really talked about uh, with this with this film is kind of how newer isn't always better. It's not the main theme of the film, but it is something that you see a couple of times uh, where the analog Gypsy Danger survives the EMP. Which how cool is it that a kaiju has mm-hmm. the ability to let off an electromagnetic pulse? And oh yeah, evolution, crazy, fan- fantastic. <laughs> and so that's why they bring in. Uh, Gypsy Danger, which is cool. Right. It's like he's been sitting in you know cold storage forever or whatever, uh, and he gets out there and he's nuclear. And you have the whole subplot, which we didn't really talk about with Stagger Pentecost, and they're showing you know the great the little pills, you know, as a good use of prop too for characterization. That you know there's a there's a story here, and it turns mm-hmm. out he's got terminal cancer, and so his sacrifice is you know it's a payoff for that too. You know, sure, like, it's sad, but it's also like you know he gets to do one final one final uh, awesome thing. So him getting back in the, you know, Stacker also getting back in the Jaeger too is like, you know what, I'm going to show you how it's done. So you kind of have that old guy getting back into it, into it too, which I always like that. The older I get, the more I like those. So <laughs> The uh, one last rodeo. That's yeah. right. So yeah. it's like we got the old Jaeger and we got the old guy in the Jaeger uh, and both of them, you know, do their job and it wouldn't, you know, wouldn't get done without it. Yeah. So as we close, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook, or you can email us at readingbetweenreels at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast catcher. We'd love to hear your feedback, and it really helps us get the word out about the podcast. And if you haven't yet, please join our Facebook group. It's a safe place to share your thoughts and discuss all things related to movies.